I invite you to turn to the familiar story of Luke chapter 2, the Christmas account. We read the first half of Luke 2 this morning, and then tonight look at the, the next portion. I'd like to focus upon the announcement of the angel this morning, verses 8 through 11 in particular. Well, let's read the first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2, the story that never grows old. Hearing God's word at verse 1, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling claws, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling claws lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Let's ask for God's help, shall we? <clears throat> A gracious Father in heaven... We are thankful that as you've told the, the shepherds, you have told us also. You have given to us the gospel. We thank you for the inscripturated word. We thank you for the proclamation of it. And we're grateful, Lord, that you have made known to us the good news. We pray that you'd visit us again in this glorious good news. We pray, Lord, it might not be dreary or old for us, but ever new, life-giving, strengthening. We pray, Lord, if there be anyone here this morning who has not found this to be good news, who have not grasped the wonder of this, who has not perhaps yielded to confess sin and to say, I need the Savior. May even this day be the day of new birth, new life. 
God, we thank you for your word. Come and do a great work so that Jesus Christ might be praised. In his name we ask it. Amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, a spectacular and yet rather hidden event happened on that first Christmas. Because in that little town outside Jerusalem, that, that village of Bethlehem, perhaps out back in a stable or in a cave against the hill, the Savior of the world was born into this world. It was an event that God had been preparing the world for thousands of years, and it was an event that would forever change the history of the universe. To think that the eternal Son of God had come down from heaven to take up a human nature, to be born of the flesh and blood of his mother Mary, to come into this world to save us. That the God-given Savior... After all the waiting, after all the praying, after all the misery, the God-given Savior had at last come. And yet, who would know that? Who would know that? The baby looked like other babies. There was nothing remarkable outwardly for this child. There wasn't a halo or some radiant beams that signaled this was the Son of God. And his, his birth was not remarkable. It was rather obscure. He was born into poverty and laid in an animal's feed trough. And who really was looking for the birth of the Savior on this night? We can assume that hardworking people were asleep in bed. Maybe drunks were out drinking, but they were not sober enough to care. And then there were the people at work at night, like shepherds, who were doing their usual thing of guarding the flock but all these unsuspecting people going about their regular duties. How would anybody know? Well, God, of course, takes care of that, doesn't he? God sends the angel to make the announcement. God is pleased not just to send a Savior, but God is pleased to send the revelation of the Savior because he wants the Savior to be received and embraced by faith. And so God begins the proclamation of the good news. Let's look at this familiar passage here, particularly verses 8 through 11. And let's keep it very simple this morning. Let's ask, number one, who makes the announcement? Who is God's appointed messenger to deliver the good news? And then secondly, who receives the announcement? Who has God chosen should be the, the very first audience, the recipients of this message? And then thirdly, who's the message about? Who's the subject of this message upon whom every eye should be focused. So the messenger, the recipients, and the subject. Well, the the angel is the messenger, right? And he comes proclaiming that he brings good news. In fact, the word that's used there in in the original Greek, I bring good tidings, or I bring good news, is the word from which we get our word evangelism, to good news someone. And here the first preacher of the good news that the Savior has arrived in the world is an angel. Now, there are shepherds out in these fields near Bethlehem. They're keeping watch over their flock, as shepherds do. They've gathered their flocks for the night. Maybe it was uh, a number of flocks that have been brought together that the shepherds might consolidate them and, and help each other to keep watch for the night. Maybe they're gathered to some pen or into an open field or up against a hill, and the shepherds are keeping watch. And they've probably done this countless times before. It's Presumably a usual night with the usual quietness. When all of a sudden an angel is standing beside them. 
this mighty messenger of heaven. And we read the glory of the Lord shone around them. Remember the the Israelites had seen the glory of God in the fiery pillar. They had seen the glory of God, the Shekinah glory cloud, descend upon the tabernacle. And now the glory of heaven is shining around them. And so they have this visit from another realm that has broken into their mundane world. Now here's an angel in all of his holiness and radiance and, and in the glory of heaven standing before them. The text began in Luke chapter 2 with, with the decree of Caesar Augustus, right? That was a lot of, of glory and honor. The Roman emperor, the emperor of the world, making a decree. But now we have a visit from another world. We have a visit from the messenger of the king of heaven and earth. Why does God send an angel to, to make this announcement? Well, obviously, it was quite appropriate, right, to send your best messengers. Of course, what, what, what kings would do, they'd send out the heralds, they would blow the trumpets, they would light the bonfires to announce that a prince was born in the palace. It was an occasion worthy of attention. But, you know, no king, not even Caesar Augustus, could dispatch an angel to, to make the proclamation. But here, the king of the world, the almighty creator, is able to send an angel. Because, as we write in Psalm 103 at the beginning of our service, the angels are the ministers of God who do his pleasure. They stand ready to do the Lord's bidding. And what are angels? What do we know about angels? Well, angels are not gods. They're not mini-gods. They are creatures made by God, belonging to God, serving God, and created to serve his elect people. And they stand in God's presence, and they, they enjoy, they bask in the radiance of God's glory, and they, they belong to another world, another realm, where all things are right, right? The angels remind us that as we live on this broken, rebellious planet, that there's another realm where all things are right. And around the angels shine the glory of God. In heaven, there, is, there are no lamps, there's no street lights, right? Revelation tells us that, that the glory of God and the Lamb are its light, and yet it's a terrifying thing for the shepherds here to, to, to see this glory. The glory of God is dangerous. The glory of God is deadly. Right? We get sunburns from the created sun. We get blistered skin from the flame of a fire. But the Bible tells us God and his holy radiance is a consuming fire. It's not safe for a sinner to stand in the presence of God. But the angel is not surprised, therefore, at at the shaking shepherds who are experiencing mega fear, and he tells them quite literally that they should now experience mega joy. I bring you good tidings of great joy. Don't be afraid. Great joy. Now, that little sentence there is one we sing. We've read so many times it it may slip right past us. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all the people. And it's difficult for us as we, as we hear those words to, to really be impacted by the wonder of what's being said because we live in a culture of hyperbole and verbal inflation where every new product that's advertised is the most amazing and it will change your life forever. But we should realize when God sends us an angel that angels are not given to hyperbole. You can't be given to hyperbole if you've stood in the presence of the Holy God. Right? 
They've seen the Lord of glory. And everything else in the world pales by comparison. Angels would not make very good actors for commercials, would they? Except maybe the ones that have gone over to Satan's side and are good liars. But I mean, can you really imagine an, an angel standing in a commercial to present the newly invented toothbrush as something that will revolutionize your life or, or holding up a salad dressing that will make you the happiest person or, or claiming that the Corinthian leather in this new vehicle will forever bring your life comfort. Could an angel say such things? An angel has seen the glory of the Lord? Of course not. Angels stand in the presence of God. They're not capable of pretending like anything less than God is the ultimate thing and the all-satisfying thing. They live in the atmosphere of the eternal deity, the King of Kings. And their lives are filled with the delight and the pleasure of serving him. And when the angel comes then and says, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of mega joy. It's not exaggeration. It's not hyperbole. These are weighty words. The angels have been following the story, right? The angels, the angels saw that first wedding in, in the Garden of Eden as God brought the woman to the man and And he in love bestowed on them his blessing. And he walked with them and talked with them. And the angels saw that traitor in their midst slither into the garden and lead the man and woman astray. They saw that treacherous rebellion of Adam and Eve against their maker. And they heard God promise that he'd give the woman a son who would deal with the enemy. And the angels have watched for thousands of years this drama of redemption unfolding as we read it across the pages of Scripture. And they know that at the beginning, members of their own rank, the cherubim, were stationed at the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword to keep Adam and Eve from the tree of life. And now God was preparing a way to the tree of life. And they've seen the amazing way God works with his people, that he he loves them, he promises them things, he sticks with them, he, he brings them out of Egypt, he parts a Red Sea for them, he descends to Mount Sinai to enter covenant with them, he turns off the Jordan River and brings them into a new homeland. And yet, despite all the mercies of God, the angels have seen that, that it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough because God's people rebel. Now, the angels are not omniscient. They do not know all things. They have to learn and watch and listen. And they have an amazing interest in salvation. Remember Peter speaks in a way that the angels long to look into these things of our salvation. And he uses a word that has the idea of peering over a banister. The angels stare with holy amazement at what God is doing upon the earth. The angels are not sinners. They they are not people who need a Savior. But they're very interested in our salvation. Because... For one thing, they love the Lord and all that he does. And the second thing, they know that heaven and earth belong together. And the great chasm right now that's endured is unfitting and needs to be repaired. The angels love their master and they rejoice in all that he does. And when they come from heaven, excited and exuberant to bring good news of mega joy, What does it tell you about God? What does it tell you about God when his angelic messenger appears on the earth with this excitement? And when a whole army 
soon joins the angel in the sky, the army of heaven chanting the praise of God. What does it tell you about God? They, they're giving us a glimpse into the atmosphere of heaven. What happens on Christmas morning is not the begrudging action of a hesitant deity, but it's far more like a mother maybe on, on Christmas when she has, she has found that gift or she has labored to, to make or to get that gift. It's wrapped up and, and the child there is sitting with the present in, in the lap and about to open and mom is beaming with a smile. It's not a gift that she was compelled to get, but it's one that her heart delights to give. When the angels are filled with joy and excitement, we get a glimpse, don't we, into the heart of God in heaven. The angels know this is a great gift. It's a gift that's needed. The angels know that the cause of misery on earth is our sin. And they know that God is doing a great and a wondrous work. God is bringing salvation. The 19th century pastor J.C. Ryle summarizes the good news. He writes, The spiritual darkness that had covered the earth for thousands of years was about to be rolled away. The way to pardon and peace with God was about to be thrown open to all mankind. The head of Satan was about to be bruised. Liberty was about to be proclaimed to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. The mighty truth was about to be proclaimed that God could be just and yet for Christ's sake could justify the ungodly. If this was not good tidings, there never were tidings that deserved that name. Good news of great joy. Heaven is rejoicing. The angels are excited. The angels are not disinterested spectators and unconcerned. The angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner that is saved and turns back. This is the joy of heaven. So God has sent us who? To make the announcement, God has sent his most convincing messenger. God has sent us a being that lives in the presence of God, who knows the joy of the Father in sending his Son. God sends us, sends us an angel that we might be convinced of this great gift. But then secondly, this morning, to whom does God send this angel? Out of all the people in the world, to whom does God send the angel to make the great announcement? Well, it's not surprising God sends an angel, but it is surprising that God chooses the shepherds as the first audience of the good news. Why the shepherds? I don't think we should believe for a moment it was because they were the only ones who were awake. Now, what do we know about shepherds? We know that shepherds were, in many ways, the opposite of angels. If the angels are glorious, shepherds are inglorious. Bible scholars tell us that the shepherds of the day were despised. They were low class. They did not rank on the scale of social nobility. People didn't like shepherds a lot of ways. They thought they were unreliable, untrustworthy. They often thought that in wandering about, they were thieves borrowed things that were not theirs. In fact, it's the case that shepherds could not testify in court. They were not counted as faithful. On top of that, many people thought of the shepherds as being unclean because in their line of work, it was hard to obey the ceremonial laws and especially difficult to fulfill all the pharisaical regulations that were added on top of God's law. 
Now, these shepherds out in the field, these ordinary shepherds, were in stark contrast to the religious shepherds of the day. The religious shepherds were supposed to shepherd God's people, were the high priests and, and the leaders, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and so forth. And if the ordinary shepherds could not testify in court, these guys were the court, right? They were the supreme court of Israel. And if the shepherds were thought of as being unclean, the religious shepherds were considered the most clean. They were the, the holy ones. And yet, what does God do here when he chooses an audience to whom the angel must go? He doesn't send the angel, just whomever he sees. You know, fly over Bethlehem, and if you see anybody, tell them. No, he, he has chosen an audience. And in choosing the shepherds, God has bypassed the religious leaders, chosen the ordinary dirty shepherds, and in that way, he has turned upside down the expectations of the world. Caesar Augustus would not do it this way. Prince born in his palace would not be announced to shepherds, right? You would, you would announce, first of all, to the nobility and to the rulers of the land. Because when the important people send you well wishes and rejoice with you, it adds a dignity to the birth of your prince. God doesn't do it that way. Religious leaders of the day had, by and large, become proud, conceited, and full of themselves. And God does not need them to add dignity to the birth of the Savior. But even more so, God did not want anyone to confuse the issue and to think that salvation, the Savior he had given, had come to associate with the ones who were worthy. As if this were a message for the upper tier How many people today don't assume that, that Jesus is for a certain type of people? Maybe, have you ever heard anyone say you know, something like, well, I could never be a Christian. I'm not good enough. No, I, you don't know. I've done too many things. You don't know what I've done. As if the Savior that we rejoice in is a Savior for those who are clean or able to get clean. God's choice of the shepherds was to make clear that God had not come looking for a few good men and that Christmas is not about determining who'd been naughty or nice. Rather, God knows the whole world has gone rogue and all people are sinners and there's a Savior for sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came not for the healthy but for the sick, not for the righteous but the unrighteous. You see, there's not really different classes of people on the earth, are there? Just hearing a podcast talking about the caste system in India. And then I actually met a, a guy who had just come from India at the gas station. I was trying to ask him about the caste system. Right, different tiers, right? Some so low they're not even in the caste system. They're below it. But that's not how God views the world, right? God says we're all in the same group. Sinners. Come under his judgment. The last day, Revelation 6 tells us that the last day, all the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks and the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The great equalizer will be clear at the coming of 
the second coming of Jesus, the wrath of God comes everyone outside of Christ. It doesn't matter how much wealth you have. It doesn't insulate you. It doesn't matter how poor you are. You don't get special handouts at this point. All people who are outside of Christ on the last day will be terrified at this consuming glory, the wrath of the Lamb now come. But that day has not yet come. This is the day of good news. This is the day of salvation. God has sent his angel to announce it and to announce it to shepherds to make clear how real it is what's being said. I bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all the people. All the people? Yeah, we're, we're telling this to shepherds. You have to get this. It's all the people. The people is speaking here of the Jews, though later in Luke here, Simeon makes clear the gospel is for all people, Gentiles too. But all the people is saying among all of God's church, it doesn't matter how, how rich or poor you are. It doesn't matter whether you're slave or free, man or woman, adult or child, nobility or common. This is good news of great joy for you. If you know something about the, the, the gospel writer Luke, then you know that he, he writes this gospel with a peculiar focus upon the weak and the less privileged. And he loves to, to tell the stories of Christ's compassion and tenderness to the ones who are pushed to the margins, the rejected, the despised, the poor, the social outcasts, those caught in shameful sins, the children, women, tax collectors, sick, disabled, lepers, other races, Samaritans, Gentiles. And so Luke is saying, look at the, the glory of the great high priest Jesus. He has compassion and sympathy for all these whom the world says are nothings. And this is good news, isn't it? It's great joy to all the people. If this morning you, you tend to hear the gospel through a cultural sieve or funnel in which you, a filter that, that makes you think, well, you know, I, I'm not much. I'm not very talented. I'm not that attractive. My personality is not that charismatic. Or, or I, I've done a lot of shameful things. And, and you put up these, these boundaries as if somehow this is less good news for me because, because I don't belong to a certain class of people then you're not listening to what's being said. Jesus has come for the nothings. He's come for sinful people. He's come for broken lives. He's come for those who are not much in the eyes of the world. And he's come for sinners among those who are wealthy and are esteemed by the world. He's come for sinners. And the angel announces to the shepherds that he is born to you. Isn't that wonderful? For there's born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You know, we don't speak that way, do we, about births? We say, born to Tom and Susie is a son or whatever. We speak of the parents. And the angels don't say, born to Joseph and Mary on this morning. Now, the angel from heaven is commissioned to say to shepherds, lowly shepherds, born to you. Someone said it's like those little tags on the Christmas gifts. 
I don't know who invented those things. You know, the to and the from tags, but they're so handy, right? To, put in fill in the blank, from, fill in the blank. And here on God's gift is that tag to the shepherds. From God. God is saying he's not just giving here his son to come into the world, but he's giving him to you. It's very personal. Hundreds of years ago, the Reformed man, John Calvin, preached a sermon. Actually, I got a couple quotes here, one from the commentary and one, I think, and one and some from his sermon here. But he preached a sermon on this passage. Anyway, Calvin said, I think this first part's from the commentary and the, and the second part's from the sermon. But he, Calvin writes, to give us added certainty, the angel declares that he was born for us. If he had simply said, the Savior is born, that would have been enough to draw us to God. Yet we might have had cause to hesitate, since we are by nature full of doubt and need much reassurance from the Lord. The words for us are not therefore redundant. What is implied is that the Savior gives himself to us. It was not for his own sake he came, but for our good and for our salvation. His earnest wish is that we might receive him since the Father wills that we should belong to him. Calvin preached these words, as Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The gift of the child is for our benefit, so we cannot really taste spiritual joy until we are sure that the Lord Jesus Christ has been fully given to us, for such is the Father's will. The angel's news was not just for one day or for a tiny handful of people. It was intended for all time, to the very end of the world, and it was meant for all of us, from the greatest to the least. See what Calvin's saying? He's saying those precious words in Isaiah, "...unto us a child is born." And this precious echo now in the, in the voice of the angel, for to you this day is born, is the father stooping down to assure the doubting hearts of his people who find it so difficult to believe that God would send his only begotten for the likes of me. And God is going out of his way to say, yes, for you, I give him for your salvation. You didn't earn him. You don't deserve him. I give him my gift to you. The Apostle Paul says that Christ came into the world to save sinners and saved him, the chief of sinners, as an example of God's mercy. We could say the same thing about the shepherds, that the angel was sent to the shepherds of all people. As an example, that the Savior was given for sinners, yes, the likes of sinners like these, even you. We're to be comforted in God's choice of the audience. But then finally this morning, what's the message all about? Well, the subject of the news is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Luke is drawing contrast here with Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is the big name of the day. If you read the newspapers, they're all about Caesar Augustus. 
Because after a, a long period of conflict, the Roman Empire has, has been beautifully consolidated and has come to peace under the reign of Caesar Augustus. And so the poets, they, they, they sung about a, a new era that had begun now under Caesar Augustus. The historians told of the, of the long rise to this climactic moment now under Caesar. A savior has appeared. People said a savior. Some people called him a lord. Some worshipped him as a god. That's not the message the angel brings. The angel sent from heaven declares that heaven says Caesar is not the savior. But this one is Jesus. Jesus. What do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from our sin, from our guilt, from God's wrath upon us. One writer put it like this, God did not send an economist because our deepest need is not poverty. Nor philosopher because our trouble is not incoherence. He didn't send a psychologist for our problem is not maladjustment. Nor an entertainer for our problem is not boredom. Nor an administrator for we are not disorganized. Nor a religious leader because we are not generally irreligious. What did God send? To you this day in the city of David, a Savior. Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The Catechism asks in in Lord's Day 11, Why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? Answer, because he saves us from our sins and because salvation is not to be found or sought in anyone else. Then it asks, do those who look for their salvation and security in saints, in themselves or elsewhere, really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No. Although they boast of being his, by their actions they deny the only Savior, Jesus. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or those who in true faith accept the Savior have in him all they need for their salvation. His name is Savior. His name is Jesus. Jesus means Jehovah saves. He's a savior. But there's another word that's given here to this one. He's called the Christ. A savior who is Christ. Christ is the Greek rendition of the Old Testament word Messiah, right? And so it's the long-awaited one, the promised one has come. But Messiah and Christ mean the anointed one. And he's anointed, isn't he, to to this work, anointing in the Old Testament of a prophet or priest or king, was the pouring on of oil as a symbol that one is set apart to a work. He's authorized to do the work and he's equipped by the Spirit to do the work. And Jesus is all of that to be our prophet and priest and king. He's, he is the anointed prophet who reveals God to us, who preaches the way of salvation. He's the, the priest who is authorized to in our human nature now, lay down his life and bear God's curse in our place to reconcile us to God forever. And he is authorized to be our king, to defeat our enemies and to rule over us. And who's the one who's able to do all of this? Well, the last name given is the title Lord. He's Savior, he's Christ. Thirdly, he's Lord. And Luke has been using that title already in the book to refer to God. 
And now Luke is telling us that this baby Jesus is God. This is the wonder of Christmas, isn't it? That though God sends an angel to be the messenger, God does not send an angel to save us. God sent his own beloved son. Heaven's greatest prize, the beloved of God, the one through whom the world was made and for whom the world was made, comes down to make a way for us to God, to save us. This is Emmanuel, God with us. Psalm 108 Psalm 108 says, give us help from trouble, for the help of man is worthless. Through God we will do valiantly, for he shall tread down our enemies. Old Testament Israel was pleading for God himself to save. And God has done the most marvelous thing, that the eternal Son of God has taken up our flesh It's come in the form of a helpless baby that he might grow up to hang on a cross wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a humble manger is just the precursor, isn't it? To the cross. So God has lavished upon us sinners the greatest gift he could ever give us, his own beloved, And God, by this angelic announcement, is saying, I want you to understand that the gift I have sent from heaven is for you. My heart's desire is that you be reconciled to me. I want to make you my children. I want to wash away your sins. I send my son to lift you up to the tree of life and to bring you into my presence forever. And in the end, that's the only thing that matters, isn't it? Christmas time, we may receive gifts. Boys and girls may receive a lot of gifts. Many things excite us. Many physical gifts are enjoyable and blessings of God. But in the end, the one gift that matters is this gift. And so the one question that matters this morning is this. Have you received the gift? God bends heaven and earth to send you a Savior and to make him known. Have you confessed your sin before the Lord? Acknowledge this is the thing I need more than anything else in all of the world. The angels who glory in the presence of God, they know there's nothing greater than God. And the angels peer down and wonder, what is God doing? He's sending his son for them. And what about us then, the sinners, the recipients of the good news? Do we humble our hearts before the Lord and say, God, I have failed you. I've broken your law. Your holiness should be to me a consuming fire. But instead, you have sent your son to the flames that I might live. God, I take hold of him by faith. I confess my sin. I put all my hope in him.
that instead of the mega death and fear that I deserve, my life might be crowned with your mega joy, great joy. Have you done that this morning? If not, this is the summons. Because as Calvin rightly said, God sent that angel to make that proclamation, not for a day and for a small handful of people, but to make that proclamation to the end of time. And God this morning has made it to you. Receive it by faith and rejoice. Amen. Father in heaven, we are humbled by your glorious gift, a gift that we can never fully fathom. Why you, the eternal Father, would send the eternal Son to bear a curse that we so completely deserved. Father, all heaven rejoices. May the earth learn to rejoice and be glad in what you have done. Thank you, Lord, that we might be in the assembly of the saints on this Lord's Day to praise together with those who by faith grasp the wonder and take hold of the Christ. Pray that Jesus would do the great work in us according to the work that he on the cross has done for us, and until that day when he lifts us to the glory above. God, hear our prayer. Be merciful, Lord. Turn every heart to you. In Jesus' name, amen.